Welcome in and welcome aboard another episode of a show to be named later. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And don't forget, subscribe wherever it is that you're listening, whether it is on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Radio.com. Subscribe, get these delivered to you each and every time that uh, we post a new episode. And uh, today we'll hear from Ryan Dunleavy of the New York Post, uh, writes about the NFL covering the Jets and the Giants and the entire league. So we'll do kind of a, a dive into the draft with the Giants needs, the Jets needs, and some of the most interesting players, yes, players and also players as far as teams, who could move up and who could be looking to make a move next week in the NFL draft. So that's all coming up with Ryan Dunleavy in a moment. And then after that, we're going to talk about baseball because you know, we've talked about this before. We talked about it a little bit yesterday on the show, but it really seems like baseball is positioning itself to come back and come back relatively soon or as soon as they can. So we'll talk about that coming up in a little bit. But first, Ryan Dunleavy of the New York Post here on a show to be named later. All right, now, as promised, we are joined by Ryan Dunleavy from the New York Post to talk things NFL draft. We can look at the Giants, the Jets, and, and a little more. Uh, Ryan, thanks so much for making some time. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having me on. Hope all's well and safe for you. All good here. Happy to have you on again. And, and you know, Ryan, uh, let's start with the Giants. It, it seems like they, they really seem to be laser-focused on, on an offensive lineman. Um, is that the feeling you're getting? And, and would you be surprised at this point if they don't, in fact, go with one of those tackles when they're on the clock at four? No, I wouldn't be surprised. Look, I've been saying since the Combine, if you follow me on Twitter or read my reporting, I've been saying I think it's an offense. Their preference is trade down and take an offensive tackle. But to trade down takes two, two to tango, and I don't know that anybody wants to trade up with the uncertainty around the quarterbacks, Justin Herbert and Tua Tonga-Vailoa. So if no one's going to trade up, then you got to stay at four. And I think if they stay at four, they will take an offensive tackle. The one reason I say it wouldn't surprise me is because there's such a lack of consensus on the offensive tackle because there's not a Joe Thomas or a Trent Williams or so or somebody like that then because of that I could see the Giants taking Isaiah Simmons just because he's not a Dave Gettleman type of player but he is a Joe Judge type of player so who's really calling the shots here is it Dave Gettleman or is Dave Gettleman ceding some power to Joe Judge if it's Gettleman, it's an offensive tackle. If this was Gettleman Shermer last year, I would be 100% since it's an offensive tackle. Because it's Gettleman Judge, I lean offensive tackle, but I can't rule out Isaiah Simmons. So I think that's really interesting that, that you mentioned that Simmons is a, a Joe Judge type of player. And, and I know that uh, given everything going on and, and that the Giants haven't quite uh, haven't been able to get into a camp or anything, you, you've only had limited interaction with Joe Judge, but I know that there was a, a media call with him uh, earlier in the day. Curious what your impressions are of Joe Judge. And, and I mean, Isaiah Simmons had a very productive and, and versatile career at, at Clemson. Um, if, if that's the kind of player he's interested in, what does that say about him in your opinion at as a coach? Well, I thought what was a couple things I thought were interesting on that call. He said best player available. And when play coaches and GMs say best player available, it like is a cue for me to fall asleep because it's like the most boring cliche thing ever. And then 
he woke me up instantaneously when he said that his definition of best player available is long-term upside, not necessarily what I think most people think best player available is, which is guy who's most ready to contribute right now. That would be a Derek Brown from Auburn. Um, he thinks long-term upside, which is interesting, and that's kind of how the New England Patriots think. He also said the biggest thing he learned from his time with the Patriots in regards to the draft was not to look back at what a guy has done, but to try to project what he will do for you and how you will use him in your system, not how he was used in his college system. So I thought that was a pretty uh, forward-looking way of thinking of things. The thing I keep hearing about Isaiah Simmons is he will be a star if coached right, if if you allow him to freelance and play all over the field and put him in positions to succeed, then, you know, he has a chance to be a really good star. But if you don't, if you pencil him in as he's our 55-play weak side linebacker or our 55-play strong safety, you're not fully getting the player that you should get at number four because you're taking away some of his strength. The judge coaching staff says they're going to do versatility, but in my career covering college and NFL football coaches say one thing and don't always follow up. So if you don't really think you're going to do that, then you shouldn't draft anything. You know, I I think that Simmons is a really interesting case. And I I saw this point made earlier uh, in the week on on Twitter by one of the the college football and and draft analysts. I'm curious what what you think. Um, Simmons seems so versatile that the people who say, I don't know what role he would fill um, like that, that almost seems like a them problem more than a, than a him problem. Right. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it limits his field, which makes it his problem. The the Gettlemans of the world are going to have a hard time with Isaiah Simmons. I think. I just it's like I just think the guys who have been around for a long time who want to pencil in an outside linebacker, who want to pencil in a safety, who want to pencil in their depth chart, that limits Isaiah Simmons' field, which makes it his problem because he's not the right player for all thirty-two teams. Um, but there's obviously a lot of teams that are, you know, thinking differently. And Matt Rule keeps talking about positionless football players. So when you hear that, you think, oh, Isaiah Simmons is perfect for Carolina. Whether he's actually perfect for Carolina, we'll see. Because, like I said, coaches say one thing and do another. But, yeah, I mean, look, Simmons, if you're going to play him, it's great that he can play all seven positions or whatever five positions he played last year. But... Five years ago, that was called a tweener. Five years ago, we said guys that didn't have a position that hurt them. Now, all of a sudden, it helps them. You have to really see how he plays to get that feel. Yeah, no, no doubt about it, but an interesting, uh, intriguing prospect for sure. Uh, lo- looking at uh, the Giants, uh, obviously offensive line is an area of need, and, and we talked about that off the top. But uh, what else do you think they kind of go into this draft targeting? Where, where else do you think they go heading into the draft next week? Look, you have a reporter on your call right now who thinks the Giants have one of the bottom five rosters in the NFL. So there's really nowhere that they can't go, in my mind. Uh, I think second round, you're looking at if one of the top centers is there, Cushenberry from LSU or Cesar Ruiz from Michigan, the Giants, I think, would jump at that possibility. They both could be gone. Zach Baum, the linebacker from Wisconsin, Again, could be gone. Here's something we do every year in the draft, whether it's coaches or analysts or media or 
scouts, we always say, oh, this guy is going to be picked in the late first round. Well, there's only 12 picks from 20 to 32, and we put about 25 guys there every year. So 13 guys have to fall between 33 and 45. It's a really sweet spot to draft in the NFL, I think. It, that's kind of why I think you see some teams who are willing to trade out of the first round, like New England or Baltimore, a lot of years, and go back into that early second round because you can really get some steals there. So, yes, Ruiz, Cushenberry, Antoine Winfield, the safety from Minnesota, uh, Grant Delpit, the safety from LSU, uh, all those kind of guys. We hear, oh, well, they could be late first round picks. Well, they're not all going to be late first round picks. That's why Landon Collins was available at the start of the second round a couple years ago. He was supposed to be a late first-round pick. So uh, I think that's where you're looking for the second round for the Giants. Center, uh, pass rusher if they don't take one in the first round, and uh, safety. You know, looking across town, Ryan, I saw you write this uh, earlier in the week, but you you talked about the Jets and Giants both looking at offensive tackles, and and it sets up an interesting proposition where, uh, you know, the the Jets are probably hoping that that maybe the Giants do go for an Isaiah Simmons or or do trade back, and and there's somebody left on the board for the Jets. Um, How high on their priority list is getting that offensive lineman for the Jets? I think it's their top priority. I don't think they'll reach and take one of the non-top four, like a Josh Jones or a um, Austin Jackson. I don't think they'll reach there, maybe. And I don't think they will trade out of 11. I think they would take a receiver. Uh, I don't think they would trade out just to pick a tackle later in the first round. I think they'd pick a receiver if all four of the top tackles are gone. But I believe if one of the four tackles is there, any of Andrew Thomas, Jedrick Wills, Tristan Wirfs, or Mackay Becton. One of those four is there. The Jets' decision basically boils down to number four offensive tackle or number one receiver. And I think what we've seen from Joe Douglas this offseason is he'll, he'll take the offensive lineman. And remember, just because he's the fourth offensive lineman taken doesn't mean he was the Jets' fourth offensive lineman. It could be Jedrick Wills, and maybe the Jets have him second, and they're thrilled he's there as the last one available. You know, you mentioned earlier the Joe Judge-Dave Gettleman interaction and, and relationship, and they're in their first draft together. Uh, Joe Douglas and, and Adam Gase are in their first draft together as well, but it's it's kind of a, a different dynamic because Gase was there first. Um, how, how do you expect Joe Douglas and the Jets and Adam Gase to, to kind of handle this draft and, and, and I guess, final say in a way uh, next week? Yeah, I mean, look, obviously Gase had a hand in uh, – hiring Douglas, which is strange, you know, obviously. So, uh, but they've, comparing it to Gettleman and Judge, they've had a whole season together. They've had months and months of learning each other's philosophies and what they like. It's their first draft together, but I don't look at it as their first year together, if that makes sense. Whereas Gettleman and Judge, this is their first year together. And really, you could probably count the number of times they've had face-to-face interactions on, you know, you know, it's under however many, you know, like it's because they haven't been together in six weeks, like they're doing all these FaceTime calls and all. They just don't have as good a feel for each other probably and as good a feel for the prospect as, you know, uh, the other two guys, Douglas and Gates, who had, you know, spent long nights together in the facility all fall. 
You know, looking at, at the Jets, what else do you see as, as their big glaring needs as, as they head into the draft? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with playmakers for Sam Darnold, obviously. Um, but you, you know, they're going to take a tackle, one of the first two picks. We're probably going to take a receiver with the other. I mean, it's really, I think, that obvious where they go receiver, tackle, or tackle, receiver. And then the rest of it is, you know, get some playmakers for Sam Darnold, get a pass rusher. Really, the Giants and Jets draft board should look very similar. Both teams need tackles. Uh, both teams need pass rushers. Uh, uh, the Giants could use a receiver uh, because, you know, Golden Tate's getting up there in age and could be this could be his final year with the Giants based on his contract. Throwing Shepard has concussion history, concussion history now. So the Giants need a receiver not as badly as the Jets, but the you know, Giants will be looking receiver in that fourth, fifth round range where they got Darius Slayton last year. Obviously a super deep receiver class. So it's, look, when you have a young quarterback like Darnold or Jones, it's about protecting him and getting him weapons so that you can win because it's much harder to win with defense this year in this league right now than it is with offense. So make your young quarterback succeed. It's that simple. A couple of bigger picture draft nuggets uh, and draft items before we wrap things up, Ryan. First off, the quarterbacks. Um, you look at each of the, the top three and really four, if you want to throw Jordan Love into the conversation, it seems like all of them have some kind of red flag, whether it's uh, you know lack of, of good tape in Joe Burrow's, you know, he, he's got just one season, or the injuries with Tua, or the up and downs of, of Herbert and, and the unknown of Love. Um, is there one that stands out above all the rest? Like, is there a quarterback that you really love and feel confident about in this draft? Yeah, it's Burrow. I mean, look, most years I've been covering this, it's like you have a debate. Like, uh, you know, I think we didn't know till draft day last year that Baker Mayfield was going to be the number one quarterback. For most of it, it was like Sam Darnold because the Browns owner was sitting in the rain watching his pro day or Josh Rosen or... Uh, Josh Allen was talked about as the number one quarterback. That year, there were so many quarterbacks that we uh, talked about as the number one quarterback. It felt like Baker Mayfield was fourth on that list, and Lamar Jackson, who actually is the best one so far, was not even really in the discussion. Uh, so there was some uncertainty there. And then last year, it was the whole Kyler Murray, will they trade Josh Rosen thing, uh, Dwayne Haskins or... Daniel Jones for the Giants. This year, it's, it's a long-winded way of saying it just feels more um, data complete, I guess, that it's, it's Joe Burrow as the number one pick this year. You don't hear Tua there. You don't see hear Herbert there. It's, it's a matter of if the Bengals will take him or if they'll trade to somebody else. But Joe Burrow is going to be the first pick in this draft, and with good reason. He's, his season last year was just absolutely incredible. The one thing is you don't see guys who have had quite as limited a resume as Burrow uh, in the first round very often. He's sort of a he's sort of a you know elephant in the room in that in that sense. But remember, last year Kyler Murray and Dwayne Haskins were both one year starters at their colleges, and they were both first round picks. And the last thing uh, for you, you mentioned the trade possibility, and, and there are a lot of teams out there that have a ton of picks, whether it's the Dolphins who need a quarterback and have a ton of picks or the Patriots who are sitting there with a ton of picks and still no quarterback. Who do you think is going to be the one to make a move or, or to kind of uh, steal the headline, so to speak, you know, next Friday morning? Good question. 
I think the Dolphins are very likely to make a trade up, uh, whether it's with the Redskins, whether at two, whether it's with the Lions at three or the Giants at four. I just don't think if they want a quarterback, I don't see how they can sit there at five when they have multiple first-round picks and 14 picks overall in the draft. They have all this ammunition. They can't just sit there and let somebody else jump them, whether it's the Jaguars or the Chargers. They can't lose out on whoever their quarterback is. The reason you traded for all these picks is to have the ammunition to move around. So I think they're likely to move up just almost like even if they don't have to, they need to, even if they don't need to based on what else is happening, they almost have to just to eliminate any 1% doubt. And then a couple other teams that could move around, I think, and steal some headlines later in the draft are the Ravens. They always move around a lot. They have two-thirds, two-fourths, two-seconds. Uh, the Patriots always move around. Keep an eye on Jalen Hurts there, I think. They don't have a second-round pick, but they have two-thirds. I think they could package to get into the second round. I could see Jalen Hurts in, Alabama, uh, in New England very easily with the Saban Belichick connection and everything I've heard about how impressive uh, Jalen Hurts has been in his interviews and with his focus and all. It just sounds like the kind of guy New England could flip past everybody. Ryan, thanks so much for the time and the perspective. Appreciate it, and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon once these games are getting underway. Yeah, whenever that will be. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Ryan Dunleavy from the New York Post joining us here on a show to be named later. Some great insight there into uh, the Jets and Giants and also just kind of looking around the NFL. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of teams that have a lot of picks. The, the Dolphins are certainly interesting, as I mentioned. The Patriots are really interesting to me, as I mentioned. You know, they don't have a quarterback and they've got so many picks uh, that at some point they're going to do something with all of those and, and maybe move up and nab somebody. We'll keep talking draft as as we continue through the uh, the next week or so leading up to the NFL draft's first round next week. Uh, but let's talk baseball here because I, I mentioned this off the top of the show and we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but it really seems like baseball is positioning itself to become the first major sport to come back. And I know that we heard uh, reports earlier in the week about when golf is coming back and when the MLS is coming back, and both of them said early to mid-June. And I think that that's really interesting in its own right. And look, golf is like the ultimate social distancing sport, so it makes sense that golf might be able to come back first. It makes sense that golf without spectators uh, is something that can be done. You know, at a, at a professional level, even at a, a personal level, I would imagine, uh, as long as the courses aren't, you know, too overcrowded. Uh, but I'm curious when a major sport is going to come back. And that's not a knock on the MLS or the PGA Tour. Uh, but how do you come back from, uh, you know, a, a half an M uh, three quarters of an NBA season that were already done or a baseball season that you're essentially, you know what, Midway through spring training, you're a couple weeks from opening day. How do you come back from that? And who's going to be the first sport to come back? And I think that baseball wants to be. I think that that's the indication that everybody is giving. All the reports from the baseball reporters uh, are essentially saying, hey, baseball wants to be the first back. Baseball sees itself, and this is now my opinion, baseball sees itself still as America's pastime. And 
you know, I know that's like a moniker maybe of, of years gone by and people may not agree, but when you think of American sports, you think of baseball and football and football is not coming back first, right? Because they're not supposed to, they're not supposed to come back until September. So if you want in the United States to, you know, put your American foot forward, you're going to go with baseball to, to come back first. And I think that that plays a role in this. I think that it, it plays a role in it because it's outdoors, because players are, you know, largely, for the most part, relatively separated. You don't have guys standing right next to each other. You don't have contact every single play the way you do in basketball and in hockey and in soccer and in football, for that matter. But there are obviously logistical problems. There are obviously issues as far as putting everybody in one place or the housing that is or is not available or whatever it may be. But I think that when you see some of the things we've seen over the last week, uh, you know, uh, of course, we saw the reporting now probably a week and a half ago from Jeff Passan and The Athletic about everybody going to Arizona. You saw the reporting from Bob Nightingale of uh, USA Today saying everybody's in either Arizona or Florida playing in their spring training site. You can see that they're discussing something. And then you see earlier in the week, uh, Dr. Fauci saying, hey, we gotta, we want to get our sports back. We think maybe by the summer baseball can be playing as long as they can test everybody, as long as they can isolate everybody, make sure everybody is safe, keep up with regular testing, they should be able to go back to baseball and back to playing. And then you see a report earlier this week from ESPN, from Jeff Passan, that says that Major League Baseball is going through a testing program, is a part of a study. They're a control group, essentially. And I had heard a little bit about this uh, last week, and I, and I thought it was really interesting, and it kind of made my antennas go up immediately when I heard about it, because it's it's clearly a way for Major League Baseball to see how ready these rapid tests are. And essentially what they are is they're the rapid blood tests. And you prick you prick a finger, your blood goes on the test, and within 10 minutes you're supposed to have a result. Within 10 minutes you're supposed to know, do you have the antibodies for coronavirus? Did, have you had coronavirus? Do you have coronavirus? You're supposed to be able to understand all of this you know, within 10 minutes, it's a little piece of plastic, a blood drop goes on it, and that's it. And so while baseball can be saying, and in the ESPN report it said, hey, this isn't necessarily Major League Baseball looking for a leg up in getting testing first. This isn't necessarily Major League Baseball looking for, um, you know, the in to get all these tests. And they can say that, and I don't, I don't think that they are lying or being disingenuous when they say that. However, it is beneficial to them to provide 10,000 employees to participate in this study. It is beneficial to Major League Baseball to get these tests out to the public as fast as possible so that they can get a whole bunch of them and they can get back to their business as somewhat usual. Because as soon as they've got tests that are able to be read in 10 minutes, they can get their players in one central location or two central locations, and they can start a baseball season. But they need that test. They need that, that 
way of finding out if everybody is healthy and they need to be able to do it quickly, which this test would allow them to do. Now, let's assume that this test study group goes great, that they, you know, decide, hey, these tests are perfect, they, they work, and we're going to mass produce them, and they're going to go out to all different places, and hey, Major League Baseball, you can get just as many of them as you want. Congratulations. What does that mean? How soon can they play? Obviously, they would need some kind of spring training. They would need to ramp things up again. They would need to get back into playing shape. You would need to let pitchers build up some of their arm strength, build up their innings, build up their pitch counts so that they can actually pitch and not get hurt in Major League Baseball games. Uh, That's the more important part. The hitters, whatever. They'll figure it out. They'll get their timing, um, you know, and and you're not too worried. But the pitchers might need a couple of weeks, and um, that gets trickier. It pushes things back. Um, Are you looking at mid-June or early June to start that process and then give them the month of June? Now, that's what I would do. Beginning of June, maybe you're able to get guys together. Pitchers can start throwing. They can start building up stamina, and they can start building towards the start of a season. And I think we've talked about this one a little bit on a podcast, but here's how I would run the season. You're starting on July 4th. On July 4th, you are playing an all-star game. Now, this gets this gets trickier. This gets trickier, admittedly, if you are playing uh, the way that Bob Nightingale suggested, which is half of the league is in Arizona and half of the league is in Florida. But on July 4th, you play an all-star game. And I say this for one simple reason. It'll be the first major sporting event in this country since March. It'll be the reopening, essentially, of big-time business in the United States. And what better way to do it, right? What is... Uh, baseball is America, right? Baseball is America's pastime. It is, you know, everything, you know, that, that you think of, uh, you know, beer, fireworks, hot dogs, and baseball. So go for it. Do exactly that. While everybody around the country is stuck in their houses, while, you know, they're looking for something on the 4th of July, maybe your town's not doing the fireworks the way that they normally would, and, you know, you're you're just hoping that you can get some kind of normal, have a celebration, put it on Fox, put it on ESPN, have every player on the field mic'd up, talk to every one of them, and and just baseball celebration for a night, end it with fireworks as if you're in a minor league game, and just have a party to kick off the season. And then from there, and then from there it becomes a sprint. It becomes an all-out sprint. You've got to play 100 games to make this season worthwhile. You just have to. And that might mean playing seven, seven games a week. I don't mean playing seven days a week. Playing seven games a week. So maybe double headers on Saturdays. Maybe you do double headers on Wednesdays and Saturdays. I don't know. But I think that you have to find a way to play seven games a week, and you play seven games a week for 15 weeks, get into your playoffs, and you're only a couple of weeks behind schedule as you would normally be had they started, you know, when they were supposed to at the end of March. And I think that's the way that baseball has to go this year. Have a huge kickoff event 
with an all-star game. Celebration of the sport. Honor the Nationals at this event. Do something big. And then after that, baseball every day, all day. That might mean four games a day at multiple stadiums out in Arizona. That means, you know, day games and night games in Florida. Everything should be on the table for Major League Baseball this year. And I think that they're going to get back sooner rather than later. That might just mean, you know, about two months from now. So that's going to do it for us today. Thanks to Ryan Dunleavy for joining us on the show. He writes for the New York Post, so make sure you check out his work there. Thank you for joining us, for sticking around, and for finding us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Radio.com, or following me on Twitter, at SethGoldberg17, or liking my Facebook page, Seth Goldberg Sports. We will talk to you again very soon here on a show to be named later.